Hi everyone, and welcome to Bloom and Gloom. If it's your first time joining us here, then hello. This podcast lives in the intersection between the natural and unnatural. We're all about plants and the unusual, bizarre, and sinister ways they exist in the world. This week, as we come up on Halloween, we've got two episodes. This one is all about pumpkins and a bit about the origin story of jack-o'-lanterns. For the Gloomy Tales episode to go with this, I'm actually going to read and provide a little bit of commentary on the original article from the Dublin Penny Journal that published the tale of Jacko the Lantern, or Jack of the Lantern. But for now, let's learn a little bit about pumpkins themselves. Cucurbita is the genus of flowering plants commonly referred to as gourds or squashes. And within this genus, there's different species that include various types of pumpkins. They are classified as Cucurbita pipo, Cucurbita maxima, or Cucurbita muscata, depending on the specific variety. Cucurbita pipo encompasses the smaller pumpkins, often used for carving or making pies, like Howden's, Connecticut Fields, and Cinderella's. Sugar pumpkins are also pipos, but they're better for pies and acorn squash is also a part of this variety as well. Cucurbita muscata is a species that butternuts and kents belong to, and also the tromboncinos, which are super cool looking, kind of like zucchinis, but really weird and funky. Cucurbita maxima are the larger pumpkin varieties, good for cooking. People also use maximas commonly for entering contests and for decoration. The Jaredale pumpkin, actually, which is one of my favourites, is grown in the town of Jaredale that I used to go camping in as a kid, and that's a maxima, and so is the Atlantic giant pumpkin. A new Guinness World Record was actually set this year in 2023 on the 9th of October for the heaviest pumpkin that came in at almost 1,247 kilos. That is a big boy. So pumpkins are warm season annual plants. They have trailing vines and large distinctively lobed leaves. I love the colour and shape of pumpkin vines. The way they coil around almost looks kind of fun. So these vines produce vibrant yellowy-orange coloured flowers, and both male and female flowers grow on the same plant, which means they're unisexual. The flowers are edible too, and they're delicious. I've had zucchini flowers in salad and also tempured. They're yum. Obviously, you can eat the seeds as well, pepitas. They're really good for you, lots of um, zinc and magnesium. Botanically speaking, pumpkin fruit is actually classified as a berry, and specifically something called a pipo, like the species we talked about earlier. This just means it's a berry with a thick, hard rind. Watermelons and rockmelons are also pipos. Pumpkins are best sowed after the last frost date in your area, when the soil temperature consistently reaches above 15 degrees Celsius. This will make sure that the pumpkins grow well and mature in time for the autumn season. If you really want to feed them up, though, you could try pumpkin cannibalism. This is a term in competitive pumpkin growing that describes the practice of recycling pumpkins to stimulate new pumpkin growth. So the grower will create pumpkin puree, which when mixed with nutrients and organic matter, enriches the soil, providing essential nourishment for developing pumpkins. Old decaying pumpkins or their remnants are often added to compost piles, creating nutrient-rich compost. The term also extends to mulching, with pumpkin parts spread across the soil. As they decompose, they release nutrients, promoting this robust growth. There's so many weird and wonderful things about pumpkins, honestly. 
They've been a staple food source for people for over 5,000 years in North America where they're native, but they're growing all over the world now and they've even made it to the International Space Station where astronauts grew and consumed them as part of their diet. They've actually been used semi-medicinally for a really long time too. They're full of essential nutrients, particularly vitamins A, C and E, as well as dietary fibre. These nutrients are known for their roles in supporting a healthy immune system, skin health and promoting overall well-being. The bright orange colour of pumpkin flesh is indicative of its high beta-carotene content, which is a powerful antioxidant. Beta-carotene helps combat free radicals in the body, reducing the risk of chronic diseases and supporting eye health. Beta-carotene is where the thing about eating carrots helps you see better in the dark came from, if you've ever heard that. And that's because it's a major precursor to the synthesizing of vitamin A. Something that's kind of interesting is if you have excess beta-carotene, it actually doesn't get transferred into vitamin A. It will get stored in your skin, which gives it an orangish or yellow hue. This is why consuming foods rich in beta-carotene can sometimes lead to a temporary condition known as carotinemia, where your skin goes orange but it's otherwise harmless. The fibre and potassium content in pumpkins can help maintain heart health, and potassium helps regulate blood pressure, with the fibre in them helping to reduce cholesterol levels. Pumpkin seeds have also been linked even to supporting prostate health. Maintaining healthy zinc levels is crucial for the normal functioning of the prostate, and these seeds contain phytosterols, which is a protective substance that might help prevent prostate enlargement. In some areas, traditional medicine also utilised the seeds for expulsion of intestinal parasites and the flowers for their anti-inflammatory properties. Pumpkin pulp and extracts have been used in the past for wound healing, burns, even snake bites, or when applied topically to get rid of freckles. They're a really multi-purpose plant. They're used as boats, like hollowed out and used as actual water vehicles. And land vehicles, for that matter. People put wheels on them and race them downhill. There's even something called pumpkin chucking, where people yeet them all over the place in catapults and all sorts. But the thing, of course, we're mostly interested in is how on earth does a vegetable earn a reputation for being spooky? Let's delve into the 1,000-year history of the jack-o'-lantern. As many of you know, our beginning here is in fact an end, as they usually are. It's the end of harvest season and right on the precipice of the looming darkness associated with the winter months. For the Celts who lived over 2,000 years ago, their calendar consisted of four main seasonal festivals that were all associated with agricultural and pastoral cycles. The seasons were divided into two halves, the light half and the dark half of the year. Lunasa was the first harvest festival, and it marked the beginning of the transition from summer to autumn. It was a time for reaping what you sowed, quite literally, and honouring the Celtic god Lu. Lu is a real badass. He's good at a lot of different things, and he's generally considered to be a solar deity. County Louth in Ireland is actually named after Lou, and its neighbouring county, Meath, is where some of the big important sites for the Lunasa Festival are, like the Hill of Tara. They're all over the place, though. Um, Dunangus on Inish Moor is a Lunasa site as well. I think they work this out according to the orientation of the sun at certain times of the year, things like that. Dunangus is a very thin place, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute but you can just feel it when you're there. 
is a huge ancient fort on an island in County Galway, for those who don't know, and it's actually falling into the ocean. It's about a 20-minute bike ride from where I got married by a Druid priest, actually. So anyway, Samhain is probably the most famous of the Celtic festivals. It was usually celebrated around the 31st of October, and it marked the end of Lunasa and the beginning of winter. It was believed that during this time, the veil between the worlds of the living and the dead was thin, allowing spirits to roam more freely on the human plane. Samhain was also associated with the natural cycle of life and death. The withering of crops and the onset of winter were seen as symbolic of this cycle, and the connection between the changing of seasons and the natural world's decay contributed to the belief that spirits were active during this time. So while there can be thin times such as a change of season or right before someone is born or dies, for example, places can also be thin, like what I mentioned before with Dunangus. So Samhain was a liminal time, a thin time that allowed this parallel world to come so close to ours that things can slip through either side. The Celts had a strong tradition of ancestor worship, and they believed that during Samhain, the spirits of their deceased loved ones would return to visit their homes. These returning spirits were seen as sources of guidance and wisdom, and during Samhain, it was customary for families to prepare for the arrival of these ancestral spirits. They would set a place at the table for their departed loved ones and light candles or lanterns to guide them home. It was a time to pass down oral traditions, stories, and ancestral wisdom to the younger generations, and also a time for divination and communication with the spirit world. Druids, the Celtic religious leaders, played a key role in facilitating these interactions. They would often conduct rituals and ceremonies to connect with the spirits and seek guidance for the future. However, not all these spirits were believed to be benevolent. Some of them were thought to be mischievous or even malevolent, and they also wanted to protect themselves from potential harm. Their measures for protection included lighting bonfires to ward off evil spirits, and wearing masks or costumes to disguise themselves from any dark entities that might be lurking. They would also carry hollowed-out turnips with eerie faces carved into them. These carved turnips served as lanterns to illuminate the night and protect against malevolent spirits. Often called hob lanterns or spook lights, they were designed to actually mimic the spirits and scare them away, and they often had protective symbols like runes on them as well. This practice marked the earliest predecessor of the modern jack-o'-lantern. As Christianity began to spread through the Celtic lands, Samhain and its traditions merged with Christian holidays, resulting in All Saints Day on November 1st and All Souls Day on November 2nd. Some aspects of ancestor worship were absorbed into these Christian observances, while others evolved into the more secular and playful Halloween traditions we know today. Centuries passed and the tradition of carving vegetables continued to evolve. When Irish immigrants brought this custom to America in the 19th century, they discovered that pumpkins were more readily available and easier to carve than turnips. Thus, the iconic pumpkin jack-o'-lantern was born. The pumpkin's natural orange hue and its size made it the perfect canvas for creating eerie faces and getting pretty creative with their carvings. So early colonists also celebrated a day called All Hallows' Eve on November 1st, and as the tradition evolved, it merged in with these Celtic practices and Christian holidays. The combination of cultures gave rise to the modern American Halloween celebration, and jack-o'-lanterns became a centrepiece of these festivities. The name jack-o'-lantern itself 
comes from the reported phenomenon of strange lights flickering over peat bogs. These are usually called will-o'-the-wisps, which are essentially like little spontaneous gas fires that sit above the bog. The name is also tied to the Irish legend of Stingy Jack, a drunkard who bargains with Satan and is doomed to roam the earth with only a hollowed-out turnip to light his way. This is the story I'll be reading on Gloomy Tales, from the 1836 Dublin Penny Journal edition. As Halloween became more commercialised, the jack-o'-lantern took on various roles in popular culture. It appeared in literature, movies and TV shows, further cementing its status as a symbol of the holiday. One of the most famous references is in Washington Irvine's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, where the headless horseman carries a flaming pumpkin or has it as a head, depending on the version of the story. Jack-o'-lanterns and their adaptation from original Celtic practices are not simply an Irish to American thing, though. While it's not necessarily the same origin, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Punky Night. Punky Night is a traditional folk festival celebrated in parts of the West Country, particularly Somerset in England, and it takes place on the last Thursday in October. The festival's name is derived from the practice of making lanterns from hollowed-out turnips called punkies which participants carry during the evening procession. Punky kings and queens are chosen based on the creativity of their lanterns, and the king and queen lead the festivities. Chants and songs specific to Punky Night are sung during the procession, reflecting local folklore and legends. This tradition is believed to date back to at least the 18th century and was historically associated with farm workers who used lanterns to light their way during night work in the fields. While Punky Night is very different from Samhain or Halloween, it shares some similarities and has been revived in recent years with community events, which is really cool. Now, to close out the episode, I'd like to list a few of my favouritely named pumpkin varieties because they're too amazing not to mention. So, we have Mr Wrinkles, which looks like a wrinkly jack-o'-lantern pumpkin. The Goosebumps Super Freak, which is so cool. It kind of looks like it has greenish warts all over it, hence the name Goosebumps. Not to be confused with the Knucklehead Super Freak, of course. There's Warty Goblin, which was obviously named after me, and Baby Boo, which definitely wasn't. There's Cotton Candy and Full Moon in this variety too, and the variety itself is known as Ghost Pumpkins because they're all actually white. Last but not least, there's the Spooktacular, which should be praised for its appropriate simplicity. Thank you for listening to my ramble. I really love talking about Celtic spirituality, actually. It speaks to me, always has. Just a reminder, the podcast will be on hiatus for November. If I can release an episode, I will, but it's highly unlikely I'm going to get an opportunity to record because I'm working until almost 9.30 every night and pretty busy on the weekends coming up to Christmas. And my podcast studio, Narnia, as my friend Beck so lovingly called it, is in my wardrobe. As you can tell, we're a pretty high production value show over here at Bloom and Gloom. Anyway, hopefully the content interested you. And if you like the show, please subscribe wherever you listen. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok or email us at bloomandgloompod at gmail.com. Until next time, have a gloomy Halloween, everyone. Love you all.